This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for November 23rd, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, the landscape for treating and preventing COVID-19 is constantly changing. This is most striking as new variants have continued to appear and are overtaking BA4 and BA5, which have been the predominant strains for a long time. As these new variants appear, our strategy for counteracting them also continues to change. But before we talk about what sorts of recommendations are out there, let's discuss where clinicians can get information to inform their decisions. Steve, we all work for a medical journal, so of course I'm going to say that journals should be the principal source of information. And I do believe that, at least when it comes to rigorous studies of the efficacy and effectiveness of interventions. However, there are two reasons that journals can't be the sole source of information for a practitioner. First, things change fast. We've seen new variants overtaking older variants with a speed that couldn't possibly be reflected in peer-reviewed journals. This has been particularly true recently. And second, the dynamics of disease are very local, with the incidence and prevalence of any given variant changing over time from state to state and country to country. Since these variables can be very important in determining appropriate interventions, it's important to have some idea of local trends. That means there's no single source for everyone. Many local health departments publish guidelines. For example, in Massachusetts, the Department of Public Health frequently updates their recommendations to practitioners. And several localities produce weather reports describing which variants are around in the community and the incidence of infection or other barometers, such as the total virus in wastewater. So Eric and Steve, I'd like to take a moment as we think about medical communication and be thankful for where we are now versus two years and one year ago. It is Thanksgiving week, and I think there are many things for us to be grateful for as we carefully think about how to protect our health and those around us. As we think about two years ago and one year ago, our hospitals were full of patients critically ill with COVID. I am grateful that we do not see that occurring at this time. However, the decrease in severe illness doesn't mean there isn't significant transmission of virus going on in the community. And as you point out, Steve, there is viral evolution such as the emergence of BA45, you suggest a long time ago, that's two, three months. So the time of evolution and change in COVID really forces us to rethink how we look at threats to health and how we need to respond to them with clinical countermeasures. I am glad that we can all be together uh, this week with our family and friends, but during this time, we do need to stay vigilant and reflect on how we can protect ourselves and the loved ones around us. So Eric and Steve, as we think about medical information and the speed of emerging new information as it relates to COVID, we need to think about the varying quality of data that emerges and how we confirm their veracity and their implications in terms of improving health and preventing new infection. So I think, Eric, as you point out, with the speed of information, both the scientific and the consumer community need to understand 
that we're living in a time where information is available almost instantaneously, some of which is not as credible as other observations, most of which will be improved upon tomorrow, next week, or next month. And as new knowledge emerges, we need to value the learning that occurs and understand that new information changes how we think about a problem, especially associated with SARS-CoV-2, and that we need to understand who are our trusted sources and how change in knowledge is a good thing, and that we need to ensure adequate support for those trusted sources. And as you point out, Eric, that often are our public health departments and different agencies that are monitoring this rapid change. And we need to make sure we provide them with adequate resources to keep informing us in real time. Lindsay, I want to pick up on one thing that you said, which is that things are rapidly changing. And I think that it's important for practitioners to communicate this concept to their patients. What they read about a month ago is likely to no longer be true. The rates of disease change, what's causing that disease changes, and the appropriate therapies and preventive measures could well change. So I think it's important to prepare people for change, that there is not one recommendation that will forever be best. That has been a challenge throughout the outbreak of COVID-19, with people relying on older statements and trying to point out contradictions. There will be contradictions, but there can certainly be contradictions that are being driven by evidence. I would only add to that, Eric. I consider that learning. And though they may be apparent contradictions, as we gather new knowledge, we improve our understanding of the problem. With SARS-CoV-2, that happens in real time, as opposed to other areas of medicine where observations often take substantially more time to change our thinking. Learning is good, and we should embrace it and deal with the apparent inconsistencies that are resolved with new knowledge. So given that knowledge is evolving and that recommendations, as you say, will change depending on the conditions that are locally prevalent, what goes into the decisions that are made about choices? Let's start with vaccination. How do you reach a decision about when to recommend vaccines? Steve, you started with the easiest one because there aren't really any choices for vaccines. And it's very likely that getting a vaccine remains a far better choice than remaining unvaccinated for almost every patient. We don't yet have clinical data on the efficacy or effectiveness of the newest bivalent vaccines. And it's clear that in most areas, the virus has moved on from the BA4, BA5 antigen that's been added to the new vaccine. However, we do have a lot of history. We know that the older monovalent vaccine has continued to offer protection against serious disease and death, even though the sequence of the antigen in that vaccine has been extinct for a couple of years. I suspect that we'll find that, as has been the case with each variant that has come along. The newest vaccine might not be great at protecting against infection, but will do a very good job protecting against serious disease. Eric, I think you point out the challenge of developing countermeasures at the speed of viral evolution and transmission, and how we think about the benefit of those countermeasures, such as a better matched vaccine, while a reasonably matched vaccine may still provide 
substantial protection. So I think we need to think about vaccines as to, as you point out, Eric, receiving them to induce immunity so I am protected. But we also need to think about them in how we protect those who cannot respond. And that's an important consideration, especially in those who are not able to easily overcome infections, such as our severely immunocompromised patients. So part of getting vaccinated, particularly over the holidays, is so you don't infect your loved ones, particularly those who are most vulnerable and may not be able to respond to a vaccine. I also think we're going to need to think about vaccines, for example, as we think about the influenza vaccination, which is multivalent, whether it's trivalent or quadrivalent. It's a vaccine where we put in multiple antigens to address what is likely to circulate or is circulating, such as two A's and one or two B's in terms of influenza types. The SARS-CoV-2 vaccine may well evolve in an analogous way where valency is appropriate to be responsive to what's circulating. But first, the coevolution with SARS-CoV needs to reach a plateau. So there isn't this rapid change in the circulating viruses so that antigens can be predicted to likely be protective for what's circulating for a longer period of time. I think that right now is a particularly challenging time for the antigen selection that you're talking about, Lindsay. There are a lot of different variants co-circulating and they're relatively distant from each other. So it's fairly difficult to choose a consensus antigen that would provide broad protection. Even if you had that today, it would be wrong tomorrow. So it's very tough. I do want to emphasize that we can have a very good antigen without it being perfect, though. And again, if we focus on the ability to keep people out of the hospital, to keep them from dying, the current vaccines are probably pretty good. And then moving on to treatment, how are the guidelines changing there? It depends on which stage of illness you're talking about, Steve. For severe disease, nothing has changed. Remember that the therapies that are being used for hospitalized patients are largely directed against host responses. Although antivirals are often used in these patients, my guess is that they don't contribute all that much, as most patients are presenting after most viral replication has subsided. Instead, our treatments are broadly anti-inflammatory, starting with corticosteroids and possibly adding any number of agents that block the production or action of inflammatory mediators. Fortunately, we're seeing a far smaller number of patients who require these sorts of treatments. For outpatients with more mild disease, there have been two classes of therapy. Thus far, it appears that the small molecule antivirals, including nermatrelvir, molnupiravir, and remdesivir, retain activity against all of the variants we've seen thus far. The other agents have been monoclonal antibodies. Unfortunately, many of the newer variants bind poorly to the currently available monoclonals. And although we don't yet have clinical data, it seems unlikely that they would be very effective. So many regional health authorities are recommending against using monoclonal antibodies, though this will be very dependent on your location. So Eric, I think you point out something that we've learned over the last two years, which is really understanding disease pathogenesis and what is causing the illness in our patients. And as you point out, 
in hospitalized patients who are seriously ill, the vast majority of their illness is due to aberrant host responses rather than uncontrolled viral replication. However, we do need to realize one size does not fit all. And in our patients who are admitted to the hospital and sick, we should tease out these different pathogenic processes to target them appropriately. In addition, Eric, you point out what's likely to remain active relative to the circulating viruses in the community that's causing outpatient mild to moderate illness. Here, thinking about the selective pressure on the small molecule antiviral agents versus the monoclonal antibodies, I think provides insight into why one class remains quite potent and the effect of the other is continually abrogated. The community immunity, our immune response to vaccination and prior infection has emerged. And with that, for new viral variants to succeed, they have to overcome that immunity. And the monoclonals are largely derived from prior successful immune responses. Thus, viral evolution in the community is outsmarting both natural immunity as well as pharmaceutically derived immunities such as monoclonals. This is a very different selective pressure for small molecule antivirals where there isn't pressure going on in the community. Their use is largely in the hospital or for short courses of treatment in individuals at home. Thus, there is less pressure on these viral pathways, therefore decreasing the likelihood of resistant mutants emerging. Lindsay, it took far longer to produce the small molecule antivirals than it did the monoclonals. Monoclonal antibody technology is very attractive because developing new classes of agents is relatively rapid, but it's not as rapid as the virus is evolving. And now we've gotten to a point where there's more durability in the small molecules for exactly the reasons that you're pointing out than there is in monoclonals. I wonder what the future of monoclonal therapies in general for COVID-19 is going to be, because right now, manufacturers can't possibly keep up with the rapid changes in the antigens. I wonder, Eric, in just reflecting back 100 years on infectious diseases in the Boston area, where, where one of our leaders, Max Finland, contributed to understanding pneumococcal pneumonia and the development of horse anti-sera that was serotype specific. So in a patent, this was before antibiotics were available. So when patients were admitted with pneumococcal pneumonia, he would perform a quellung reaction or understand the serotype of pneumococcus infecting the patient and then be able to pick horse anti-sera off the shelf to give that patient essentially an early kind of antibody therapy, although it had cross-species issues and other biologic complexity. But the concept of how do we match antibody therapy to the infecting strain? And I wonder, once SARS-CoV-2 reaches an evolutionary plateau and diversifies with multiple strains circulating versus stays relatively monomorphic with a dominant strain, we may go back to this concept of understanding the infecting strain and having a choice of monoclonals on the shelf that may be applicable. Currently, there are monoclonal antibodies 
being used to try to prevent infection in exposed high-risk individuals. So despite everything you say about monoclonals, do these remain effective against the newer strains? Unfortunately, it's likely that they're not. There's only one monoclonal cocktail, tixagevimab, silgavimab, or Evusheld, that's approved for preventing COVID-19. In vitro studies suggest this agent doesn't bind sufficiently well to the newest SARS-CoV-2 variants to likely be effective to prevent infection. Again, local conditions will vary, so it's important to know what is circulating or what current guidelines are wherever you're caring for patients. Eric, I think you point out how in vitro data can inform clinical practice without necessarily direct clinical observations, such as failure of this antibody cocktail. How we gain confidence in our in vitro observations of inactivity and therefore likely clinical inactivity, I think we've learned from how we look at antibiotic use in resistant organisms, although viruses are quite different. But I do think these principles are informing us in ways that allow more rapid adjustment of our practice based on strong rationale, though we may not have definitive clinical data. It's a good point, Lindsay. It's important to remember that sometimes we see differences in binding capacity that vary by three or four fold. It's very difficult to know what those numbers mean. But in many cases, we're seeing changes in binding capacity that vary over thousands of fold for various variants. When you see numbers like that, you've got to think that these are not going to be successful, even in the absence of the clinical data that you're talking about. While we're seeing fewer hospitalizations for COVID-19, here in the United States, the number of people hospitalized with respiratory illnesses has shot up. This is particularly true for children. And in many parts of the country, hospitals are running out of pediatric beds. So what's going on? Well, COVID-19, unfortunately, isn't the only respiratory illness out there at this point. We're entering the season where respiratory viruses are much more common. Every year, we have outbreaks of viruses like influenza and RSV. But this year, the outbreaks are particularly large. Influenza seems to have started early this year, while this is a particularly severe RSV. While the disease isn't COVID-19, there could well be a couple of connections. First, Since people were masking and staying away from each other for the last couple of years, there's probably a decreased level of immunity in the population to these infections. In addition, there's a lot of vaccine fatigue out there, and there are likely fewer people who've been getting the recommended flu vaccine. Steve, I think one of the issues this highlights for me is diagnostics, something that we as a community have not invested adequately in. As we remember, two and a half years ago, it was next to impossible to diagnose SARS-CoV-2 because of the inadequate tools available. I think we need to think about how we are able to now diagnose COVID. Here in the U.S., most of us have access to rapid diagnostics at home, let alone in our clinics. What about for all the other respiratory viruses that are equally prevalent or may even be more prevalent over the next two to three months, as you mentioned, Eric, RSV and influenza. I think we as a community need to think long and hard how we develop and position diagnostics to allow us to have more individual control over knowing if we're infected or not, and therefore able to protect those around us. It's a great point, Lindsay, and one that was overlooked 
early on in the outbreak. But as you say, having diagnostics for a range of pathogens really might help us modify behavior in a way that decreases transmission. So as you're suggesting, great, inexpensive, freely accessible diagnostics, hopefully that can be used at home without requiring trips to a physician's office or a testing site would go a long way toward helping us develop strategies that could be used to help prevent infection of more people. And Eric, along those lines, as we come together this week here in the U.S. to sit around the Thanksgiving table with loved ones, if your COVID test is negative, but you have cold symptoms, you may well have one of these other viruses And we need to think carefully about not spreading that to those around us. So in the absence of easily accessible home diagnostics, if you have a cold and you're COVID negative, you probably still have a cold. And you should think carefully about diminishing uh, the chances of spreading it to others. Stop me if this is too personal, but Lindsay and Steve, I'm curious, for your Thanksgiving gatherings, are you asking asymptomatic people to test for COVID? <laughs> well, well I, I can start. And uh, yes, the answer is yes. Uh, we, <laughs> uh, my family's much less interesting. Uh, we're, we're having a, a limited interaction in person and we'll be using um, Zoom technology to connect with relatives across the country. So there is no need to test as we'll not be in the physical same room with others. Like Steve, we're testing. Um, Testing is not quite as effective an antiviral as Zoom, but it probably will work. So getting back to this increased incidence of respiratory infections, what can physicians recommend to their patients? The easy one is getting the flu shot. It's important every year and it's important this year. For RSV, I think that we're getting close to having a vaccine, at least for adults, but it likely won't be available during the current RSV season. For particularly high-risk individuals, the kinds of measures that have worked over the last couple of years should continue to be effective against all respiratory infections, though. That means masking when appropriate, staying away from others when you're sick, and avoiding large indoor gatherings during the respiratory virus season. Eric, I think as you point out, Blocking transmission, being vaccinated to prevent serious illness and early diagnosis if one becomes ill for properly directed treatment, and I think protecting the most vulnerable around us are things that we can do to improve health through the holiday season. Before we close, on that note, I'd like to echo what Lindsay said at the beginning of our podcast, which is that We do have a lot to be grateful for right now. People are not dying at nearly the rate that they did. There's still a serious disease out there. However, things have improved tremendously. And I want to wish all of you and our listeners a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, Lindsay.